Welcome to Holy Week in Parkside Green's Bible Study. I'm Pastor Steve, thankful to be studying about Jesus' resurrection during Easter week when we are celebrating Jesus' resurrection. And that first Easter Sunday was certainly a Sunday to remember. Now, the idea of remembering or remembrance is a key theme at the end of Luke's Gospel. Uh, we see a commanded remembrance in Luke 22:19, when Jesus tells his disciples to celebrate the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. And then we see a bitter remembrance, don't we, in Luke 22:61, when Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows today, you're going to deny me three times. And we see, thankfully, a sweet remembrance in Luke 23, 42, when the believing criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that theme of remembrance carries over to this week's passage, where we will study a Sunday to remember in Luke 24, verses 1 to 35, under three headings. Words to remember in verses 1 to 12, a walk to remember in verses 13 to 27, and a meal to remember in verses 28 to 35. And to pick up the context, we recall that when we left off last week, Jesus' female followers saw how Jesus' body was laid in the tomb. And then they prepared spices and ointments uh, uh, and then rested on the Sabbath before heading back to the tomb at early dawn on Sunday, taking the spices that they had prepared. And that's the background to the women hearing some words to remember in verses 1 to 12. And we know from the other Gospels that a large stone, a great stone, had been rolled over the entrance to Jesus' tomb. And then the soldiers actually sealed the tomb to make it as secure as they possibly could. So it was quite a surprise when the women found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And another surprise when they went into the cave-like tomb and they did not find the body of Jesus there. They had seen Jesus' body laid there safely just before sundown on Friday. But now at sunrise on Sunday, Jesus' body is no longer there to be anointed with the spices that they had brought. So who done it, right? They were perplexed, understandably. I mean, the fact of the empty tomb was undeniable, but how to explain it? Thankfully, heaven intervenes as two men in dazzling apparel stood by the women. And we learn later in verse 23 in Luke, as well as in the other Gospels, that these two men in dazzling apparel were actually angels, uh, which has caused the women to be frightened and to bow down with their faces to the ground. Then these two angelic men say to Jesus' female followers, words to remember. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. Remember, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men to be crucified and on the third day arise. Let's slow down just a second to absorb these words to remember. Why do you seek the living among the dead? My tombs are for dead people. Jesus is alive. You're not going to find a, a living Jesus here by the tombs. He's not here, he's risen. Christ the Lord is risen today. Sons of men and angels say, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. 
Remember, remember how Jesus told you way back in Luke 9, 22, when you all were still in Galilee? Uh, before he had even set his face to go to Jerusalem, remember he told you the Son of Man must, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Well, that's what's happened. It's the third day. He, he's been delivered into the hands of sinful men. He was crucified and now he has risen on the third day. So don't be perplexed or frightened. Remember, he told you. Like us, they suffered from a dull memory of Jesus' teachings. But heaven's messengers jogged their memories, and the women recalled Jesus' words. Uh, it had unfolded exactly like Jesus said it would. And when Jesus says something, you can take it to the bank, you can trust it as fully truthful. So the women, which included Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and others, at least five or six in total, maybe more, they headed back from the tomb and they told all these things to the eleven apostles and, and to all the rest of Jesus' followers who were gathered with them there. But the women's words about the stone being rolled away and no body of Jesus in the tomb and two angels saying Jesus had risen from the dead and, and reminding them about Jesus' words, that, that seemed to the others to be an idle tale. I mean, in the first century, sadly, women's testimony was often seen as suspect and initially this bigger group did not believe the women, despite the fact that the empty tomb fits perfectly with Jesus' clear teaching, his words to remember how on the third day he'd be raised. You see that they were not psychologically disposed to belief, but actually to unbelief. And yet, the women's testimony was enough to make Peter want to check it out for himself. Just the possibility was enough to make him run, not walk, but run to the tomb. And when he arrived there, maybe breathing hard, Peter stooped and looked into the tomb where he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Let's think about that for a second. If someone had moved or stolen Jesus's body from the tomb, it is very unlikely that they would have taken the time to unwrap it from all the linen cloths and then to fold up the face cloth nice and neat, as John 20 verse 7 says. So there must be another explanation for why Jesus's body wasn't there in the linen cloth that he'd been buried in. And that made Peter wonder or marvel at what had happened as he headed home. Well, next we move from words to remember to a walk to remember in verses 13 to 27. And that's a section of scripture found only in Luke's gospel. Uh, on that same Sunday to remember, the, the same one when the empty tomb had been discovered earlier in the day, two of Jesus' followers were going to a village named Emmaus. It's about 60 stadia, just, just under seven miles from Jerusalem. And perhaps they'd finished their Passover time in Jerusalem and they were headed out. And a seven-mile walk provided them with a couple hours for these two to talk and, and discuss all the things that had happened. And as they were conversing with each other, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. See, this duo had now become a trio, but their eyes were kept from recognizing that the risen Jesus was actually the traveler who had joined them. And that produces an 
odd situation of the other two telling Jesus about what Jesus had just experienced, but not knowing it was Jesus they were talking to. <laughs> when Jesus asked them to kind of get him up to speed on their conversation, they stop walking, they stand still, and they show their sadness with uh, downcast faces. One of the two, named Cleopas, answered the yet unrecognized Jesus by saying, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? I, haven't you heard the news? Didn't you check your Facebook or Instagram? How could you be so out of the loop? Everybody's talking about the things that happened. And Jesus plays along furthering the discussion by asking, what things? And then the two explain that it's all about Jesus of Nazareth, a, a man who was, notice they use the past tense, was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. No doubt, Jesus' many miracles showed he was mighty in deed, and his profound teachings showed he was mighty in word. He was approved by God and the common people. But the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and rulers, delivered Jesus up to be condemned to death, to be crucified. And then these two travelers were disappointed. They were discouraged by Jesus' death because the two had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. Uh, apparently, they'd been looking for a, a more physical, maybe political redeemer who could liberate them, perhaps, from Roman rule, rather than a spiritual leader who would redeem through his atoning death. Their hopes had been dashed when Jesus was crucified, and, and it was now the third day, right, from Friday to Saturday to Sunday, since these things happened. And then the two added some further detail that uh, some of their women had amazed the group, because these women had been at the tomb earlier that very day, that Sunday morning, and they didn't find Jesus' body there. Instead, the group of women disciples came back saying they had seen a vision of angels. And the angels said that Jesus was alive. <laughs> and others subsequently went to the tomb and they found it just as the women said. But no one had seen Jesus yet. So they thought they were actually seeing him right then. And that's when Jesus turns this into a walk to remember. At first, he rebukes them for being foolish and, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. If they believed the scriptures, you see, they wouldn't have been sad. And Jesus asks rhetorically, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, then enter into his glory? Maybe you believe the prophecies about the Messiah's glory, but not the ones about his suffering. But if you really knew your Hebrew Bible, including passages like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 that we studied last week, you would know that the prophets foretold how the Christ, how the Messiah was to suffer before entering into his glory. See, a suffering and crucified Messiah actually fits with all that the prophets have spoken. Then, in one of the greatest, maybe it's the greatest, private teaching times in all history, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to these two disciples the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Wouldn't you like to know which passages and patterns Jesus pointed out to these two? I mean, did he show them how the Christ was the promised prophet, one greater than Moses who was to come? 
Did he show them how the Old Testament priests really pointed to the ultimate high priest, the Messiah? Did he show them how every imperfect king pointed to the perfect king of kings who was coming? Did he show them how every Old Testament sacrifice over centuries were pointing to the Messiah's perfect and final sacrifice? Whatever was included in this lesson, we know that Jesus led them into a clearer sense of what they should have expected of the Messiah, who, still unknown to them, was actually Jesus himself, the one walking and talking with them. And then their seven-mile walk to remember leads to a meal to remember in verses 28 to 35. Uh, as the three of them drew near to their destination village of Emmaus, Jesus acted as if he was going further. He, he wasn't going to force his continued presence on them, but uh, instead gave them the opportunity to offer hospitality. And sure enough, his two walking companions urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for, for it's toward evening, and the day is far spent now, and it's getting dark out there. Hey, come on, share a meal and housing with us. And Jesus agrees. And then when he was at table with them, he, as the invited guest, appears to assume the role of the host. He, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Now, if you go back to the feeding of the 5,000, you can see a striking resemblance to Luke 9:16, which says, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. Then Jesus broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples who set them before the crowd. Some suggest that it was Jesus's special way of breaking bread, or, or maybe it was even seeing the holes in his hands when he did that, or, or seeing a gesture peculiar to Jesus that gave him away. We are not told, except that God opened their eyes, that the two now recognized that their traveling companion all along was Jesus. But just as soon as they realize it's Jesus they've been with this whole time, he disappears or vanishes from their sight. It's similar to what Luke will narrate later in Acts 8.39. You remember how the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more? Well, while Jesus vanishes physically, his influence definitely does not vanish. The two say to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road and he opened to us the scriptures? First, Jesus opened the scriptures to them, and now God opened their eyes. It's amazing grace. Those who had once been blind now see things for what they are. Their whole experience with Jesus had been so impactful that they're like, we can't keep this to ourselves. So even though it was nighttime and they had already walked seven miles earlier that day, that same hour, they said, let's get up and go back to Jerusalem and tell the others. And when they found the 11 apostles and the others gathered with them, that Jerusalem group had also been transformed from unbelief to belief. Those who initially thought the whole thing was nonsense were now saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. And that fits, of course, with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, that Jesus appeared to Cephas first, and then to the rest of the apostles. Uh, Jesus had not only risen from the dead, but he had appeared in his resurrection body to Peter 
and to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And that gave the chance for the two who would return to tell the larger group in Jerusalem what had happened to them in their travels on the road and how Jesus was known to them in the breaking of bread, the meal to remember. All the prophets and all the scriptures pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, who would suffer before entering into his glory. And everything in this chapter in Luke 24 points to the truth of Jesus' resurrection. Think about it. The women saw the empty tomb. The angels declared that Jesus had risen. That's heaven's explanation of what had happened. It was exactly what Jesus had prophesied beforehand in Luke 9.22. And then the risen Christ actually appeared bodily to Simon and to the two disciples on the road. Uh, initially they had doubted, but now they believed, which is huge. It's huge. Why? Because, as Paul will teach us in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the good news, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. And if Christ had not been raised, Paul says, our faith would be in vain. Our faith would be futile. We'd still be in our sins, and there'd be no hope for those who had died in Christ. So we thank God that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that those who belong to Jesus will also be raised with him to eternal bliss forever and ever. There are so many ways we might apply this passage to our lives. I just ask you to consider these three possibilities as well as others that you come to in your own study. Number one, trust in Jesus' words, all of which are true and are fulfilled. Trust in Jesus' words, all of which are true and are fulfilled. Secondly, read the Old Testament with an eye toward what it says about Jesus, the coming Messiah. So read the Old Testament with an eye toward what it says about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Thirdly, praise God for Jesus' resurrection, which assures God's people of our resurrection. Praise God for Jesus' resurrection, which also assures God's people of our resurrection to eternal life. Christ the Lord is risen today. Alleluia. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ has risen, just as he said he would. And we thank you, Lord, that you continue to open the scriptures and open our eyes, Lord, that our hearts might burn within us as we see that all that's written in the scriptures points to Jesus, the Messiah. And we praise you that Jesus rose from the dead, and that gives us assurance as Jesus' followers that we will rise after death as well. It's through Jesus that we pray. Amen.